0: Uh, Okay, sorry, thank you. One point that she, Avital, made towards the end really hits on what I want to develop, namely how with all the people referring to negativity and so on and so on, I, up to a point, up to a point only, agree with Heidegger who somewhere noted that Hegel himself, the philosopher of negativity, really fails to... To, to explicate, to bring out the, let's call it naively, fundamental operation of negativity. And I claim this will be the thesis that, in a way, without being aware of it, when Freud talks about death drive, that is to say this post-Hegelian topic of blind repetition, that it is only... In this line of post-Hegelian thought that, as it were, retroactively, we can get the zero-level operation of Hegel. So, okay. Let me jump in media stress and confront the question in all its brutal naivety. Can Hegel think the Freudian field? Here is my first improvised list of what, so it seems, Hegel cannot think a series of concepts mostly elaborated by psychoanalysis and marxism repetition unconscious overdetermination modern mathematical science then the dimension of language which lacan calls la langue language in its ridiculous aspect of uh, Uh, of, of, uh, 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 of playing with words, ambiguities, and so on. Then, the notion of antagonism, class struggle, sexual difference. Now, upon a closer look, however, it becomes clear that one should be very precise about what Hegel cannot think or do. It is never a question of simple inability. There is, in all these cases, a tiny imperceptible line of separation which compels us to supplement the assertion of impossibility or inability with a qualifying yes but hegel cannot do it yes but he almost comes there to be able to do it first repetition of course i'm aware that hegel does think repetition but and here the let me call in this brutal throwing together of two totally disparate thinkers in the field of Kierkegaard and Freud. As opposite as they are, they both, of course, at a totally different level, uh, propose a notion of repetition, which is a non-productive repetition, a pure repetition, which just strives for more of the same. Hegel's notion of repetition, on the other hand, always involves an Aufhebung. I don't know, sublation is the usual term. Through repetition, something is idealized, transformed from an immediate contingent reality into a notional universality. Or at least through repetition, the necessity of an event is, becomes Passes from an sich to für sich, from in itself to for itself. Hegel's two great examples. Caesar. First, we have Caesar as the name of a person, singular name. Caesar has to die so that he repeats himself as in Augustus Octavian as Caesar the title. This is Hegel's perfect example. No? With Octavian, Caesar is no longer a single name of a contingent individual. It becomes a general title. Octavian was the first Caesar. Or, through repetition, the assertion of necessity, Hegel's example is Napoleon, of course. Napoleon had to lose two times to get the point that his time is over. The first defeat, 1813, it was possible to perceive it as a simple contingency, bad luck or whatever. You had to do it twice to get the point. The fact that Hegel misses this excess of purely mechanic repetition in no way implies that he is too much focused on the new. Now, a truly intelligent critique of Hegel, and we find it sometimes in Deleuze, sometimes, not even when he talks directly about Hegel, (coughs) would claim that it is precisely because Hegel cannot think the pure repetition, repetition without the movement of Aufhebung or Idealisierung, that Hegel cannot think the radically new. One would have said that it's exactly the opposite, that repetition is simply the repetition of the same nothing new. But the idea is that in this hegelian repetition, which is repetition sustained by Aufhebung, Idealisierung, precisely the new is not radically new, but is just the explication of what was already there. And here Deleuze, although I think he is here much more hegelian than he himself thinks, Deleuze makes here a wonderful remark that something really new can emerge only through repetition. No, he means something very precise that uh, when we really have a radical change, let's say we talk about something, let's say, I don't know, a state, then not yet radically new is if you try to undermine the state in different ways and so on and so on. But Something radically new would have emerged when you don't even have to change the terms. Positively, you say state, state. But, you know, the whole horizon changes so radically that state is no longer the same state. The point being that to feel the truly radical emergence of the new, which means the change of the entire field, you must pass through this test of repetition. It's not that true change is not to say something different. True change is to say the same, but which all of a sudden function or whatever has a meaning at a totally uh, different level. Here, again, I claim, but again, you know, now what comes is the but. But nonetheless, but nonetheless in a way, My God, Hegel maybe knew it. Because isn't this his entire notion of tautological repetition, that repetition is a radical contradiction? He doesn't mean it in any stupid, abstract, logical way. But in a very concrete way, here we have Hegel at his Wittgensteinian best. By Wittgensteinian, I mean that he just draws attention to how tautology functions in our... everyday use of language. For example, when you say Hegel's example, a rose is a rose, why is this a contradiction? Because after you begin, a rose is. The formal structure is that of a subject and a predicate. A rose is. And you expect something. And it's a total surprise that because of determinate something, a rose is blue, a plant, green, whatever you want, You get just the same. And then, if we develop this further, you can see how, for example, in our everyday language, when do we use For example, if you say, but man is a man. Don't you use this tautology precisely when you want to signal that someone is not at the level of the concept of a man, like something is expected of me? I fail miserably, and then Avital Beach will maybe come and say, Slavoj is Slavoj. What can we do? You know, you see the point. Know that pure repetition means exactly, exactly this. That pre- How could put it? pure repetition of the same tautological is a way, as Hegel would have put it, to signal that a thing doesn't fit its own concept. Let's go further. Hegel and the unconscious. Here, again, things are more complex. Hegel does think the unconscious. He has his own, even very precise notion of the unconscious, but the Hegelian unconscious is totally opposed to the Freudian unconscious. It is the transcendental universal form of what I am doing as opposed to the immediate particular content, which is the focus of my conscious attention. To take the most elementary, so ridiculously simple example, you know, from the very beginning of phenomenology, not for rede, not Einleitung, but Zinnliche uh, Bewusstsein. When I say now, of course I mean consciously this particular moment, but the big Hegelian point, what I say is a universal now, every now. Like, the very form of language undermines my literal intention. So uh, Hegel here, in a very almost Lacanian way, explicitly claims that when you have a gap between what somebody literally says and what he wants to say, he uses usually the word Meinen means to say, meinung, that the truth is in what you say, not in what you want to say or you mean to say. So again, uh, yeah, the, the most radical, beautiful development of this Hegelian unconscious is, of course, you find it towards the end of the Einleitung, not the long one, for red, to Phenomenologies des Geistes, where Hegel introduces when he speaks about the Erfahrung des Bewusstsein, experience of consciousness, and passage from one to another, figure of consciousness, Gestalt des Bewusstsein, he introduces the category of das formelle, the formal aspect. He says, we have one figure and then the other. For example, I don't know very naively, again, from phenomenology. We have uh, stoicism, skepticism, and then we have, uh, we have uh, uh, unglückliche Bewusstsein. How is this translated? The un- not Unhappy un- un- consciousness. Now he says, for the, the agent of experience, him or herself, it's just that one thing disappears, another one emerges. What the, the agent itself, the subject, doesn't Perceive is the formal aspect, the inner necessity of this passage. But again, this Hegelian unconscious is formal universal. It's more universal in the, in the sense that uh, you are, as it were, bewitched, trapped by the particular content. You don't see the transcendental form. The Freudian unconscious is, on the contrary, the unconscious of particular contingent associations to, and links. And this one can claim maybe, it's not sure, Hegel cannot think. To take a classic Freudian example, he reports on a dream of a feminine patient of him where she, her dream was about a funeral she effectively attended the previous day. And in the dream, she appeared, I mean, the dream made her very sad and so on and so on. Freud also uses this dream to exemplify his idea that except anxiety, all affects uh, cheat. Uh, So Freud provides a wonderful interpretation of this dream. And what I want to focus on is this total lateral contingency, accidentality of his reading. Freud, totally suspends any hermeneutic immersion into the scene of the dream, like, oh, funeral, somebody's dying, what does death mean to this woman? Or maybe it's ritual, funeral, who died there? And discovers a totally lateral connection that, as usual, the woman brings up as totally unimportant at the end of the session, that she was surprised to meet at this funeral, her great ex love. And the secret hope was that maybe I will meet him again. So it was basically a totally happy dream. This whole bullshit of horror, death and so on, was I meet a guy and okay, let's not go on. Maybe he will screw me next day or whatever. But you see but no you see the point. The point is that this totally contingent link is radically non immanent. No matter how you analyse the scene of the dream the emotional horizon, and so on. You don't get it. It's just this totally contingent, partial link. Link uh, uh, connected to this is the impossibility for Hegel to think over determination. Now, let me be very precise here. Hegel can think over determination, but only in the purely abstract sense of a universality, universal species which comprises itself as its own subspecies and thus encounters among its species itself in. The term he uses taken over by Marx in its Gegensätzliche Bestimmung, oppositional determination. This is basically the most elementary structure of over-determination. And it's exactly in this sense that, for example, Marx in his... uh, introduction to Grundrisse, where he develops this four-fold structure of uh, production, uh, distribution, exchange, uh, consummation. He says that production is doubly inscribed. It's at the same time the species or rather, okay, the genus encompassing and one of its species that is doubly inscribed. This is in the strict Hegelian and even Freudian sense, over-determination. It's not simply that, yes, everything is complicated, over-determined. No, no, it means this precise paradox that uh, that over-determination means that one of the elements of a set over-determines the set itself. This, incidentally, if I may be a little bit brutal, is what already people like Engels, Lenin even, don't get even Lenin at his philosophical best in so-called uh, philosophical notebooks, clearly there his limit is the notion of Wechselwirkung. That is to say, you know, like, uh, no, it's not just simple causality, but everything is connected with everything else. Uh, if A influences B, there is always a counterwirkung, wirkung counter-efficiency, blah, blah, blah. That's not enough. Overdetermination means precisely this uh, reflexively redoubled efficiency where you not only influence B but you over influence the very way B influences you back and so on. So Hegel can think this but what he cannot think is again the complex network of particular links organized along the lines of condensation, displacement, verdichtung, verschiebung and so on. In more general terms, the Hegelian process always deals with the radical, clear cuts, resolutions. What is totally foreign to Hegel, not so much foreign as he would have dismissed it as meaningless, stupid, is the Freudian logic of pragmatic, opportunistic compromises, not in theory, but in the logic of dreams. Uh, uh, for example, what, what, you know, this is why it is so difficult and non-convincing when some authors, jeanne Polyte, among others, tried to conceptualize the Freudian dialectic of repre- uh, repression, verdrängung, and wiederkehr, return of the repressed in the terms of negation of negation. First, something is negated, let's say, in the sense of verdrängung. And then it returns in the guise of a symptom as uh, return of the repressed. Yeah, but uh, uh, the point that doesn't fit Hegel's notion of negation of negation is that, you know, a strange things happen with Freud. It's, nothing gets resolved to the end. You try to do something, you fail, you make a compromise, you blur even this one. It's all a kind of a patchwork of compromises. Recall the legendary case of forgetting the name Signorelli from Freud's uh, uh, Psychopathologie des Lebens. I have to boast here that I know German a little to be more impressive. <laughs> Freud, <laughs> Freud couldn't recall the name Signorelli, of the painter of the Orvieto Frescos, and so he produced, as substitutes, the names of two other painters, Botticelli and Boltrafio. And his analysis brings to light the processes of signifying associations which linked Signorelli to Botticelli and Boltrafio. The Italian village, Trafoi, was where he received the message of the suicide of one of his patients, struggling with sexual problems. Herr, the German word for master, senior, is linked to a trip in Herr Tsegovina, where an old Muslim told Freud that after one can no longer engage in sex, there is no reason to go on living, and so on and so on. So we have a complex rhizomatic texture of associations and displacement, which displays no clear triadic structure with any final resolution. The result of the tension between, let's call it thesis, the name Signorelli, and antithesis, it's forgetting, is the compromise formation of falsely remembering two other names in which the dimension on account of which Freud was unable to remember Signorelli, the link between death and sex, returns in an even more conspicuous way. This, in a way, you don't find in Hegel. With Hegel, somehow, the conclusion of a dialectical process is always, it explodes. Radical resolution. Like, first, like, exemplarily, for example, the whole dialectic of modern society, uh, which, uh, uh, you know, begins uh, in, in the chapter on Bildung formation, education in Phenomelgides Geistes. It starts with all this first corruption of authentic medieval master, feudal master, and his servant's relationship into this flattery of Louis XIV, of of, uh, Ludwig XIV, and then it goes on through utilitarianism, uh, uh, French revolutionary terror, and there it achieves its radical pure form. You get the absolute As it were, contradiction of self-negating negativity, of reign of terror where every subjectivity is potentially negated, of this mad dance of pure self-destruction. The problem is that precisely nothing like that happens in the Freudian space of the formations of the unconscious. There we have all the time compromised formations. You know, something is asserted but simultaneously denied, displayed, reduced or encrypted in an often ridiculously patched up way. Now, the next point I want to make is that what complicates this figure, this approach, is that... Uh, You know, what is so mysterious is that whenever people want to point out how Hegel was not able to see something, quite often, when you look closely at it, you see that the dimension that he was not able to see is not some modern post-Hegelian dimension, but it's the very Hegelian aspect, dimension of a phenomenon. He wasn't able to see in things precisely what he should have seen, if he were to able to approach this phenomena through his own, let's call it, it's a wrong term, meto- methodology. Let's take, and Fred Jameson did here in his short recent book on Phenomenal Some made some nice points. Let's take the topic Hegel and economy. We know Hegel was reading uh, uh, Adam Smith and so on. But what is so surprising is that, since Hegel's notion of modern society, as Rainson points out, nonetheless remains basically at a pre-capitalist level. It's basically artisans, people producing, exchanging. This idea that the moment we pass into Hegel's model was still uh, manufacturing and so on. The idea of uh, big, large Factories with mechanized machinery a bit clear class division, those who own is simply not present in Hegel, but again, what is so beautiful is that Marx, in order to describe these dynamics as we all know, had to reach hegel you know after after the fiasco of the, the relative fiasco of the forty eight revolution, Marx uh, started to read again Hegel's logic, and it's absolutely crucial for Genesis of Capital. I mean, just look at Capital, and you will see here and there, or rather all around Hegelian references. For example, the passage from money to Capital is formulated in purely Hegelian terms as the passage from abstract universal substance, money as the common measure, the universality, but passive, abstract universality of all particular commodities to money as active subject. Capitalist money which is no longer a samsas but active subject, which reproduces itself in its circulation and so on and so on. So the dimension, very nice one I think, I want to emphasize here is that, for example, what Hegel was not able to see in modern economy it's not some totally un-Hegelian dimension, but his own shadow in it. What? And Okay, then uh, another thing. Here, Gérard Lebrun, a very good French uh, philosopher who wrote a lot of Kant and Hegel, who unfortunately died recently, pointed out <coughs> that maybe what made for Hegel, what made Hegel unable to think Capital is that. You know, namely this, and we are back at the problem of repetition here. You know Hegel's uh, big opposition between, usually it's translated spurious uh, infinity, schlechte, is it schlechte or what? No. What is the bad infinity? I think it's schlechte unendlichkeit, yes? And the good one, the true infinity. Uh, But... uh, The true infinity is precisely the subjective infinity of self-relating. And as uh, uh, Lebrun pointed out, Marx characterizes capital as automatic subject, automatic subject. Why, Why is this paradoxical? Because what is so perverse for a Hegelian in capitalism is that it undermines this simple duality of, on the one hand, just the mechanical repetition, on the other hand, truly speculative, self-relating, and so on. The movement of capital is both at the same time. At the same time, a it has this aspect of endless repetition, just endless circulation, more and more and more, but at the same point, so it's automatic, almost mechanical, but at the same point, it is strictly subjective, speculative, self Relating. This was probably, uh, as uh, Lebrun puts it, a monstrous mixture that Hegel was unable to think of. And maybe, I claim, Hegel, this is also why Hegel was not able to think uh, mathematics. Hegel brutally reduced mathematics to the very model of pre dialectical uh, verstand. An abstract understanding, just formal thinking, unable to engage in a proper conceptual dynamics. But, my God, it would be really worthy to reread Hegel here. For example, it's wonderful what Hegel writes. Obviously, the problem obsessed him about, a, how do you call it, infinitesimal calculus, no? He, this is maybe one of the great symptomatic points of Hegel. Because what he there encounters is a case of mathematics which clearly functions in purely speculative way in Hegelian terms. Why? What you, happens there, you know, in, in, let us say, how does a circle and a line, where do they t- Like, that you can have the paradox of We have a circle where a straight line touches it. It's just a point, but this point nonetheless has a direction. So as Hegel puts it, it is as if in mathematics itself, we no longer have the relation between two two quantities. But it is as if, or rather we have it, but without the x, what they relate to. Both sides... The line and the cir- circle are, as it were, reduced to zero. What infinitesimal calculus presents us is just the formula of a pure relationship where the relata, the related terms, are in itself disappear. So again, this is pure speculative reversal. And it's incredible reading. I mean, it's like... If one sign, check it up. This comes, of course, towards the end of the chapter on quantity where Hegel deals with mathematics in the first book uh, uh, on sign on uh, logic, on the logic of being in Hegel's great logic. What is so obvious there? I mean, what makes it so obvious that we are dealing with the trauma is Hegel's, uh, where are we? Okay. Is Hegel's idea of uh, is the, the very length? Sorry, of this part, you know, it's so weird. I think it's around fifty, sixty pages. She's totally traumatized. Check it up. You know, endlessly goes into it. Obviously, he struggles terribly with. But again, you see, it's not. He found something. That was totally unthinkable for him. No, he found himself where, according to his own theory, he shouldn't have found himself. He found speculative movement in what should have been for him just stupid mathematical, uh, uh, uninteresting uh, repetition, and so on, and so on. Okay. Uh, Another thing... Another way, oh my god, time is running, this is so evil, but whatever. <laughs> to save Hegel is even when you speak about what I called la langue, you know, playing with words, ambiguities, all this crazy aspect of language where, as it were, language in the, in its material texture starts to function on its own independently of, uh, content. So that you have, for example, crazy lateral connections which have nothing to do with inner logic of meaning. Now you would have said, oh, here Hegel should be totally against. First, here we encounter the genius of Hegel. It's very interesting how Hegel always resisted this common sense temptation of saying, Since language is imperfect, our common language, we should construct a purely either formal, mathematical, or conceptual language where terms will be very precisely defined, you know, in the sense of avoiding all ambiguities and so on and so on. That's how Hegel usually is perceived, as pure thinking where you just need language as an imperfect tool. In a way, this is true. Hegel does say that thinking means using language against itself, that you we have to think in language but against language. Now, if you know a little bit about Hegel, you know his paradoxical answer to how do we do it. Not to strive as far as possible to... to to introduce ambiguity, clear structure in language, but on the contrary, to mob- by way of mobilizing precisely the dimension that Lacan calls La Long, all these stupid abstract uh, associations and so on and so on. You know, I think I even, I'm sorry, I don't forget, I remember where it was, but there was one uh, German author who presented a nice German, this bureaucratic work the list of all of these Hegelian playing with words. For example, not only the big one, everybody knows this, the notorious Aufhebung. Three meanings. Annihilation, preservation, and elevation at a higher level. This is even too teleological. But then, for example, uh, when Hegel speaks about contradiction, radical difference, he says that in a contradiction, the thing destroys itself to Grund again. And this is how he arrives at the category of Grund. No, Or even, it's not even purely at this uh, conceptual level where Hegel clearly mobilizes all the contingent ambiguities language. Sometimes he even is very evil. I love him at the, at the personal level. For example, you know Hegel's. Some people even don't get it. For example, Pierre Macherey. In his book Hegel or Spinoza Hegel or Spinoza claims that uh, uh that uh, Hegel uh how do you call that lung disease that people were dying in German? Uh, sorry? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that Spinoza died according to his philosophy for for PB. The guy doesn't have a point. He just takes this as Hegel's cruelty. No. Hegel, not the German term for tuberculosis, it's Schwindsucht. Schwindsucht means suchen, to search, to disappear. And then Hegel makes this a wonderful evil remark. He says the basic lesson of Spinoza's philosophy is that every particular identity searches for its disappearance, annihilation in substance. So Spinoza was consequent and died accordingly for Swindzucht and so on. And uh, not only this, another wonderful detail, Hegel, who was no German nationalist, you know, when he has chosen Berlin is not the seat of the German Reich. Read his letters. It is money, money, how much. For some at some point it looked that he will be more paid in uh, Amsterdam. He got an invitation. And it's interesting how immediately he wrote his Dutch French. Can you bring me as many as possible? He was started already to learn Dutch. The play words, ambiguities of Dutch language and so on. You know why this is beautiful? Because he didn't play Heidegger game, Hegel here, of, oh, there is a deeper wisdom of German language. No. This is what I like, that you can fight the contingency of language. But how you fight it? By mobilizing co- the contingency itself at its most stupid at con- and contingent. You know, it's almost the same thing as Freud, when Freud says in a crucial remark that when you, uh, that uh, the, the way you can be sure that you encounter something real in a dream is when, in a dream, you dream about a dream, a dream within a dream. That's the form of the appearance of of the real. Uh, so, uh, and this is one aspect. We find this in Hegel. On another aspect, also interesting, I claim, is that from the opposite side, also the Freudian unconscious has often a wonderfully Hegelian reference to form. In Freud also, unconscious can be formal, in the sense of simply the form, the medium of expression. I will give you now again, there are much more complex examples, but a wonderfully simple example. When Freud reports again of a woman who told her that she was dreaming, that she is pregnant, but she cannot say the dream became unclear, it's not clear, it's a mess. And then Freud discovered a very simple one, but let's focus on the forum. The idea, what did this insistence, oh, oh, it's not clear, and so on. All of a sudden, the woman started to refer to the forum of her dream or tagestrom, daydreaming. And uh, his solution is that the woman wasn't, able to confess to herself that, well, she was sleeping around with many men and didn't know what was unclear was who the father is. And this unclarity, unable, this was too much for her to admit it, even in the content of a dream, it appeared as the uncertainty in the form of the dream. So, you know, this wonderful logic where content is censored. But what is censored in content returns in the very form. It's a very Hegelian move. So again uh, Oh my God, how the time is running. Okay, this is life. Uh, let me go on. So uh, uh, we have them, nonetheless we should return to it. Ah another point about Hegel cannot think repetition. Maybe even there I'm not so sure. It is absolutely crucial to read Hegel's anthropology, anthropology, the beginning of his Philosophie des Geistes, third part of uh, Encyclopedia, where Hegel makes it very clear that, A, there is no freedom of thought outside language. But that in order to learn a language, you must internalize the rules in a totally non thinking mechanical way, which is why, and I totally agree with it, although so, with Hegel here, although some people would have dismissed him as proto fascist or whatever, which is why I think Hegel is right to insist that uh, why when I think it's in some of his notes on pedagogy or whatever I forgot where Hegel confronts this problem: why should people uh, read a dead? learn in universities a dead language, uh, <coughs> Latin. is this a purely dead mechanical living thought is only living languages? And then Hegel even, as it were, takes into account in advance Heidegger's point, which is that yes, Latin is dead language, the only authentic living thinking was Greek, and so on and so on. And Hegel there makes a wonderful term. He says no the foundation of our thinking has to be a purely dead, mechanical custom. That precisely you need, like, you know, we can be free, think creatively, whatever you want, only if we, in a totally mechanic way, obey, follow uh, the rules. Okay, so uh, then the next point... One can demonstrate that uh, Hegel uh one can demonstrate also that Hegel uh that even where Hegel appears to be at his most idealist self-bewusstsein, self consciousness, he is talking about the unconscious, that is to say that now this is a crazy thesis, but Lacan developed it very convincingly. I think I'm not sure it was in his Lambert de la psychanalyse*, the other side of psychoanalysis, seminar on four discourses of psychoanalysis, I think it's from 69, 1970, where Lacan proposes a crazy statement, self-consciousness is an object. What does he mean by this? I think something very simple, which provides a crucial key of what Hegel, of, of how the Hegelian notion of self-bewusstsein is to be understood. Selbstbewusstsein does not mean that some kind of a meta subject or a thinker or whoever is really aware of what is going on. But something else. Hegel himself provides, when he writes about the functioning of the state, and when he uh, develops in what sense the state is the Selbstbewusstsein, self awareness of uh, society so that a society doesn't exist as a true subject without state. But then Hegel uses some wonderful examples. For example, he says that this doesn't mean that the guy, this is now crucial, this doesn't mean that the state consciously knows what it is doing, even less does it mean that the head of the state, the monarch, knows. No, Hegel says it openly, the head of the monarch, sorry, the head of the state, the monarch, is an idiot. His only duty is to know to sign his name and so on. What Hegel says is that uh, state is self-consciousness of society in the sense of that all acts of state, but especially, let's call it celebrations, parades, nominations, whatever, are not simply functional events, like, but are also, to use the modern language, Performative self-declarations. So uh, and then Hegel uses a wonderful example. He says, for example, a parade or a ceremonial meeting is where state is a state is conscious of itself. But this only means that it reflexively, to use the Ridian, in precise the Ridian term of Mark, remarks itself without anyone. Having to be aware of it, Hegel even uses the example. Let's say we have a ceremonial parade. The king thinks how to escape his wife after the ceremony. This is my specification, not Hegel's. Uh, to, to, uh, to screw that beautiful lady, uh, daughter of his servant, queen thinks about her lover. Bureaucrats, minister think about them. nobody has to think about it. But the very in the very form, this performative dimension is. Uh, is at work. Something similar Lacan fuck, am I dreaming? It sounded almost as my name and I thought I was thinking about that horrible story that I mentioned yesterday on Italo Calvino and so on. You know we are here alienated but then an original innocent feminine voice calls me out and then I go out and okay we are here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Let me go on. No, Lacan says, let us say something very stupid. You know, this is how one should read Hegel's notion of Selbstbewusstsein. It's not a psychological notion. It's a purely notion of reflexive registration. You not only do something, you symbolically inscribe it, register it. Let's say I were to, and I'm even consciously convinced that I have a good time. No, it's much more honest the opposite example. Let's say consciously I'm tired of you, like, screw you, this stupid talk here, blah, blah, blah. But let's say then then I were to produce a gesture, a symptom, which would nonetheless signal the opposite, that maybe I'm narcissistic, maybe I like you, whatever, but that I really enjoy to be here. It's just a gesture, a symptom. Isn't it that that Symptom is my true self-consciousness. Only there I remark where I truly stand. That I become aware in a purely formal way of symbolic registration that in that the whole idea that I hate you, I want to be over is false. And Hegel even mentions somewhere when he criticizes divorce of in marriage. I don't agree with him, but he makes a nice point, which is that uh, often people privately dream about cheating on their wives, husbands, and so on. But once, and you do it discreetly, but once you are pushed towards, let's divorce, they all of a sudden discover that what they misperceived as just an external forum is much more binding. You know, never dismiss when you say, oh, I don't care about my wife, my husband, it's just formal commitment. This is never innocent. Forms usually matter much more than they uh, appear to matter. So I want now to give you nonetheless to elaborate, to conclude a little bit more this final point on uh, repetition, what dimension of repetition this Kierkegaard-Freud dimension of or religious repetition that Hegel cannot, maybe, cannot think. Let me quote a passage, and I here I must confess I took this from Frauke Berndt, who I met in Chicago, she gave, uh, from uh, Frankfurt am Main University, she gave this example which I take from her. It's a nice example, since we are here in Deutsche's house, maybe I should... Bluff and pretend that I know something about great German classics. It's it's a really nice passage from Goethe's letter to Schiller from August 16th or 17th, 1797, when Goethe reports to Schiller on an experience, his experience, which made him perceive a piece of ruined, destroyed reality in the city of Frankfurt as a symbol. Listen to this wonderful quote. It's from Briefe an Friedrich Schiller in sämtliche Werke, uh, Volume 4 and so on. You can find it, whatever. No? Uh, okay. Here is the quote. My grandfather's house, its courtyard and its gardens had been transformed from the parochial patrician home of an old Frankfurt elder into the most useful trading, and marketplace by wisely enterprising people. Curious coincidence during the bombardment bombardment in Napoleonic Wars conspired to see the structure perish, but even today, reduced for the most part to a pile of rubble, it is still worth twice as much as the current owners paid my family for it 11 years ago. Conceivably, the whole thing may, in the future, be bought and restored by yet another entrepreneur. And you can easily see that it would, in more than one sense, stand as a symbol of thousands of other instances in this industrious city and, in particular, in my own eyes. End of quote. I think it's crucially here to note the contrast between allegory and symbol. Allegory is melancholic. As Freud pointed out, a melancholic treats an object, which is still here, as a lady lost. Melancholy is a preemptive mourning. Let's say you are in love, your partner is still beautiful, but you already look at him or her, oh my God, I already see what will be become out of you 20 years from now, and so on and so on. And wonderfully dirty things can be said about this procedure. Do you know, I read somewhere that, I even have uh, quotes, that some medieval theologists warning men against sinful, seductive character of women uh, you practice the same thing. They told them, okay, you are now fascinating, a beautiful woman naked in front of you. But just focus your mind on this same figure naked, and imagine what will these breasts look 30 years from now, and so on and so on, and then that's the truth. Do you want that and so on. So that you see the shadow of the future death already in, already in uh, its present still. Goethe, however, that's my point, does the exact opposite. He sees the potential for the future prosperity in the present pile of rubble. In a somewhat pathetic way, one could say the same about the ruins of September 11th. A melancholic would see in them the truth of the arrogant dreams of the United States grandeur. That is to say, he would see already in the Twin Towers themselves the ruins that lie ahead. You know, like, oh, you may boast now, but, ha ha, everything will fall down. While a Goethe-type optimist would see in the ruins of September 11th a symbol of the enterprising spirit of that other industrial city, New York, which was probably what Frankfurt was at least for Goethe, which will soon replace the ruins with new buildings. Again, crucially is here the rise of the symbol from ruin and repetition. Uh, it is precisely through the ruin that a symbol appears. When you have simply a nice big building, it's not a symbol. It is simply a stupid nice big building. Only through ruin can you get the dimension of the of the, uh, of the symbol. And my point would have been that here we can maybe oppose Hegel and Kierkegaard. While in Goethe, as in Hegel, repetition generates meaning. For the post-Hegelian Kierkegaard, there is just repetition, no rise of new meaning. Repetition is asserted as such in its mechanic quality. So now, uh, let's go a step further. Uh, And just really, if you allow me to conclude, to propose my final formula. Because still now I'm well aware, I just tried to confuse you, like nothing. you think you, as it were, caught Hegel by his balls and are squeezing them, but no, Hegel finds a way out, and so on. No, 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 I nonetheless propose this formula. On the one hand, at its most elementary, no, it is that Hegel has this radical notion of negativity, contradiction brought to its extreme self-destruction, which again then turns into its opposite and so on and so on, while Freud remains at the level of uh, uh, kind of endless compromises. You mentioned this, Avital, and I have even a system of them. All this, my friend Mladen Dolar uh, called them this, the Freudian fair, fair as in fairwerfung, rejection, foreclosure is not a good uh, um, uh, repression, Verdrängung. Then, disavowal, verleugnung, denial, verneinung, verdichtung, Verschiebung, which are all not clear negations, but this compromise negation, verdrängung. You repress it, but not quite. As Freud hints at somewhere, and Lacan proposes a beautiful formula, there is no repression without the return of the repressed. Because if there is repression without the return of the repressed, then it's verwerfung, it's just thrown out. Or verschiebung; It's not negated, it's just instead of here, it's there. Or verdichtung. You know, all these complex modes of how acceptance itself can function as a mode of denial. For example, my preferred example here is what uh, uh, so-called... Isolierung. What Freud calls Isolierung is that you take something into account formally, but you totally isolate it so that the fact is torn out of context and loses its symbolic efficiency. For example, you know that I always admired communist, uh, this Kremlinological, extremely thick system of symbols, and there in China on my recent visit I found a, a wonderful case of isolierung, the case, the way Chinese official ideology uh, relates to their past, to the enormous horrors of the past. For example, the great leap forward. Formally, they admitted Mao committed mistakes, uh, It was uh, horrible, millions died, but uh, At the same time, although they formally admit it, but then I asked one of my friends there, he told me, but we admit it. Mao was terribly wrong and so on. Great leap forward uh, was a great catastrophe. Then with my evil European spirit, Attitude, I asked the friend, okay, so can I then write a book on Mao's limitations and will it be published? He told me, no, 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 we admitted it. Why to dwell more on it? You know, like, you say it, but the whole point of saying it is saying it as that. Don't, saying it functions exactly as, as, as the way to, to, to block any further mention of it. Saying it explicitly is Basically, the way to, in a way, to repress it absolutely. I admit it, so fuck off, stop. Don't. Like, when somebody tries to dwell on it, to elaborate it, a party functionary tells him, what are you doing? Whom do you really serve? We admitted it. So what's the point now, you know? So, uh, uh, but back to Freud. So it may appear that Hegel is more simple, radical, contradiction, negativity to the end, while in Freud we found this mixed confusion. No, but at the same time, I claim, it's also the opposite, that only through Freud can we isolate the very core of Hegelian negativity. Here I come to the point, which is what? What would have been, and this is a great debate also in Freud, you know, it's a very interesting, crucial metapsychological Debate. We have all these Freudian forms of verneinung, verwerfung, isolierung. They are all forms of, in a formal sense, negativity. But is there a zero-level negativity? Some people claim, and I don't buy that, but it's a convincing theory, it's that it's so-called ausstossung. You know, this idea that ego, at the most elementary level, in order to emerge as opposed to non-ego it's not simply i say here am i ego out there is non-ego it's also i have to throw out part of myself it's a very nice dialectical thought that it's not just again a question of drawing uh, drawing the line of separation to be able to draw this line this external line line between me and not me has also i have to lose part of myself So, to put it in very Hegelian speculative terms, the external limitation between what is me and not me must at the same same time be an internal limitation. It's not this. I think, and here comes the beauty, that the zero level of negativity, which is exactly the fundamental form of uh, repetition, is its opposite. It's not that you negate something, but that you get excessively stuck onto something. Like this is for Freud, for example, the fundamental paradox of trib drive and compulsion to repeat wiederholungszwang. This is even I attempted to claim Freud's elementary form, even if not theory of metaphysics. We have a human animal, and animals, insofar as they are animal, okay, now I enter very problematic waters, I'm well aware of maybe exposing myself to Derrida and criticism of, but what the hell, why not, No, of uh, 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 referring to oversimplified opposition between animal and man, but it has certain pedagogic pedagogic pedagogic. we get certain pedagogic profit from it so why not so my point is simply this one that uh, it's not that as we usually say animals are stupid stuck onto their object while we men are creatively dynamic you jump from here to there no even I spoke with some cognitivists who were doing uh, very simple experiments with apes and so on, and told me, no, the, the immediate behavioral distinction is that men get much more stuck, like my good friend, Guven, G- uh, uh, no, Güven Giseldar, sorry, from Duke, now he moved elsewhere, he's incidentally a Turk, and, you know, we associate Turkey with Muslim uh, fundamentalism. And he told me he had a wonderful experience. He came from backward Turkey to United States. Then he put there his children to school, no? And he is a normal secular Turk. No? And his children, a week later, came home and said, Father, Jesus loves me, and so on. What is this? learned to school. Then then uh, the guy told me, why didn't you baptize me? The teacher told me I will burn in hell, blah, blah. Okay, At the end he decided that, he prefers somehow the, the primitive Muslim fundamentalist Turkey, when you can survive without all this, at least compared to, you know, Duke is and Ireland. island. All around is Jesse Helms' country, you know. The, okay, let me go on. So he told me that he made a very stupid experiment with monkey and love object. You present to a monkey a preferable love object, a beautiful feminine ape, no? And the monkey... And then another inferior, not so attractive. The monkey tries with the first one, if it doesn't go, okay, fuck it. Life is life, you move to the second one. (laughs) While with humans it's much more complex. We have this fixation to an, as it were, to an impossible object. And this is where repetition originates. When it's precisely this immobilization, you know, Things flow, and then all of a sudden it is, as it were, you get stuck onto something. You are not ready to give it away, and then you get caught in this uh, circle. So here, I think that we should reread Heidegger. There is an extremely interesting passage in Holzwege. Heidegger, the Spruch von, is it das Spruch or der Spruch? This is my limit of the Okay, I I was really just testing you, I knew it. From Anaximander, which is very mysterious, because Heidegger there, in a way, says something quite surprising, which, as it were, uh, problematizes his entire notion of historicity, not historicism, uh, geschichtlichkeit. Heidegger considers there the possibility that an entity... And I quote, may even insist, bestehen, upon its while solely to remain more present, in the sense of perduring, bestendigen. That which lingers persists behart in its presence. In this way, it extricates itself from its transitory while, while as a substantive. I didn't translate this, don't ask me why. It strikes the willful pose of persistence, no longer concerning itself with whatever else is present. It stiffens, as if this were the only way to linger, and aims solely for continuance and subsistence. So things flow, now I interpret Heidegger, they follow their usual course of incessant change, and then all of a sudden something gets stuck interrupts the flow, and we, this what, to use the term introduced by Judith Butler, this excessive attachment to a particular scientist, here I disagree with Heidegger, because Heidegger thinks as if you know, like, I'm consciously evil here, like, you know, that old creep Yoda, says in uh, star wars you know i really yoda is worse than it when i see yoda in star wars i became a nazi where are my big boots to squash the stupid guys because he has this you know don't get attached to particular beings but i claim our own metaphysical freedom is grounded in such an excessive attachment. Because Heidegger says very well, no longer concerning itself with whatever else is present, that is to say, for us humans, you get my point, to acquire this distance of negativity, I'm not this, to in, the only way for us to get unstuck from reality, to acquire a distance from reality, is to get excessively stuck onto a totally particular contingent element. So that in a way, in this way, and this is the Freudian way, one can generate negativity out of positivity. One just accelerates, or rather pushes to excess positivity, in the sense of here things are here, but I got stuck to this one. And by this, everything else is destabilized, I acquired... So... I like this idea of how the secret of neg- negativity is this being stuck onto something like... And Hegel, we may say he comes sometimes even close to it. For example, when he says something very nice when he speaks about abstract freedom of subjectivity, he says that uh, the only way for the subject to signal its, his, her, let's say, its autonomy its detachment from all empirical objects, is to pick out one particular thing and stake absolutely everything on it. You know, this meaningless pride. When you say, I don't know, you can beat me, you can burn my house, whatever you want, but that, you know, like, let's call it the Michael Kolkha symptom, but that, the way you treated my horse up, I'm ready to... You see, Michael Kolka's would be a nice example. Do whatever you want, but don't touch my two horses. I'm absolutely stuck there. And as you know, Kolka's is ready then to... He does practically destroy half Germany in civil war. Just that. But you know, here, the object doesn't matter. As Freud himself says very clearly that the object of trip drive, even if it's an unconditional fixation, it's ultimately indifferent. What, precisely in its indifference, in the indifference of the object, the message gets through that what matters is not the object, but my arbitrary fixation, my free will uh, itself. So, again, it's through this fixation, I try to reach again and again this excessive moment that negativity and repetition emerges. And you were kind enough to announce a little bit of PR propaganda, my forthcoming book, which is Total Madness. It will be, now it looks, a little bit over 1,100 printed pages uh, on Hegel, <laughs> where I precisely try to focus on all these Elements of excessive fixation and, at the same time, uh, excessive negativity. Like you have in Hegel the way in Anthropologie, first part of uh, at the beginning of Philosophie des Geistes, when Hegel speaks about Ferritkeit, madness. It's Hegel at his Foucauldian best, where he says that uh, the possibility of madness is structural, Hum, there is no human subjectivity without an ever-permanent shadow of madness. So, for Hegel, again, madness is not some, as he puts it very clearly, some accidental deviation. But it's, he says in a beautiful Foucauldian way that, although this doesn't mean that we all should be mad, but being human presupposes the possibility of madness... Structural possibility and the fight against it. Then we have uh, many other moments of this. For example, uh, the necessity of war, the most problematic Hegel for some people. But here we can see how wrong are those who think that Hegel brings at the end some kind of reconciliation. No, Hegelian reconciliation is not everything is reunited in some larger harmonious synthesis. Reconciliation is for Hegel precisely reconciliation with the irrational madness of the world. Remember clearly where Hegel introduces in the Phenomenologie des Geistes the very term Versöhnung At the end, just before religion enters, at the end of that uh, 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 of that uh, 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 chapter, where he deals with with, uh, with the beautiful uh, with the beautiful soul, and so on. That is to say, with the consciousness, or rather, form of subjectivity which judges, compares, pardons, and so on. And then he says, "You have, in a total that you have to abandon every position of judging. Reconciliation is not the subject swallows." the object. Reconciliation is precisely you accept the radical otherness. Really, to conclude, my point is that we have here a wonderfully complex structure, because what I was saying doesn't mean that simply, okay, now we, okay, fuck off Hegel, we got your point, The secret formula of Hegel is in Kierkegaard Freud. Now let's forget Hegel, let's deal with these guys. Ah, here I would like to conclude with an idea which came to me apropos of Wall Street. Uh, Protests, very strange Freudian association. Uh, You know when Claude Levy-Strauss says something beautiful about prohibition of incest, he says this prohibition is not a question to which we don't have an answer, but it's an answer without question. It's obviously The prohibition of incest is a solution, an answer to some deadlock. We don't know to which one. We don't know the problem, the question. In this sense, I claim, yes, Kierkegaard-Freudian notion of repetition is where we get Hegel's secret at its purest. We get, in this fixation, repetition, and so on, we get, as it were, the zero level, the real core of Hegelian. Dialectics, but we can see this only if the question is Hegelian. So, to really stop now, I think that, that we will have a lot of time, like two, three minutes for debate and so on. <laughs> it's that, uh, no, I'm really sorry to repeat an old joke, but I cannot resist it. I love it. When people told me, but you're a totalitarian, you don't like dialogue, I told them, You must have heard it, but I love it. I love dialogues, late Plato's dialogues. You know what happens there. One guy speaks all the time, and the other says every ten minutes, by Zeus, so it is, Socrates, and so on. So so, I think that our task today is simply, of course, not to simply remain Hegelian, in the sense of the fidelity to Hegel's explicit position. This is madness. But to... To read, to read post-Hegelians from the standpoint of the Hegelian question. The only way to read what is truly great in post-Hegelians is to read them as an answer to the Hegelian question. Which is why, to conclude, we all know that the post-Hegelian break has Another dimension, which is the most famous one, the dimension of new positive order. No, usually it is said, Hegel, crazy idealist, this is just the realm of shadows. And the basic post-Hogelian break is to introduce or assert some positivity of uh, uh, the will in, in, in late Schelling, Schopenhauer, uh, and so on, or, or uh, even Nietzsche, or, or, for example, for Marx, the, the actual positive social process of production, Kierkegaard, the singularity of belief. So you can, you have some positivity which should be the foundation of the abstract. I claim that this is precisely the original sinner for me here, if you ask me, is Feuerbach. He is the worst. This idea that there is some positivity of being missed by Hegel. No. The much more crucial dimension of the post-Hegelian break is this emergence of radical repetition. And I think we are still at this level. So the task is, you may have guessed my final formula, not to go beyond Hegel, but to repeat Hegel in the Kierkegaardian sense. Thank you very much for your patience.
1: Very nice.
0: That's nice. Nice. You know that cynical part in he- in no, Hegel's, everything is not Hegel, in Brecht's uh, Dreigroschen Opera where one of the bad guys, guys who exploits prostitutes and when he's complaining, how can you do this? Why don't you do it in another way? No, He says, e- es geht auch anders, aber so geht es auch. <laughs> so that would be my answer, my self-comment. No.
1: Very, very helpful. So uh <laughs> You
0: are das bitch, you know. No, she wanted it's a long joke. A she wanted to be das avital. Like not das capital but das avital. <laughs> And I gave her an argument which I think convinced you. I told you that if that's avital, it sounds evil, but it leaves open the space for this disgusting humanism. You know, like oh, she pretends to be evil, that's avital, but there is nonetheless a warm human being beneath. No, that's yeah, that big, turned me of off. Nothing human. It's <laughs> a big turn off. It <laughs>
1: Thank you. So how many how many minutes of uh of Two. No, okay. Okay, do you give a
0: couple of questions? Okay. So Here this is me.
1: a world historical moment. Oh my How's god. Don't, don't, don't go too
0: far because now it's not even undecidable. Now it's pure making fun of me. You know what no. I mean? <laughs> no,
1: because you are in principle ready to take questions, right? So bye. Are you leaving?
0: Line, no. Five times. The word in principle.
1: In principle.
0: Like Stalin was in principle for democracy. <laughs> <laughs> no, in this sense.
1: <laughs> but we don't want to torture you either, or do Why we? Why not? Okay, we do. I,
0: so thinking is torturing. I, I wrote, please, I will have a long text on Heidegger torturing and language, where I go in detail into this. I don't like she's a nasty bitch, Elfride nastier than you, uh, <laughs> Elfride Jelinek. But he said one thing wonderfully. He said language in its fundamental dimension, language lies. We have to torture language to make it say the truth.
1: That's that's ridiculous. Are you crazy? But What poetry is this? What? Suddenly (laughs) you regressed off the page to truth and lies and... Oh, wait
0: a minute! I'm I'm not about. Uh, you should be more. maybe Don't sell okay, me this Okay, up! Post. You
1: did so well, and now you're bullshitting us.
0: No, they're bullshitting you on. You know, on, on Wall Street. I was so mad that I didn't discover this obvious play with words. You know what's the symbol of Wall Street? No, a bull. And yes, they are bullshitting. We are getting the shit of that bull. Don't oh, know.
1: That's true. Not Very good. By this, no? But no, I loved it. I loved, loved it. it, really. Yeah, oh, really. Perfect. So um, yes. we have different ways. We haven't deconstructed Q&A, but what we can do is you can listen to the questions and then decide if you want to answer them. It doesn't so have What to.
0: would be a really Levi-Straussian way would be for me to talk for five minutes, and then you would have to guess which <laughs> was quest- the question <laughs> to which I'm <laughs> This would be the only Hegelian way.
1: <laughs> so who would like to ask Slavoj or make a comment? It doesn't have to be a question. It can be an answer, as he said.
0: No, I'm quite serious. I'm not accusing you, but do you know that at every conference, there are usually guys who... Pretend to ask a question, but really use it for like ten minutes self-declaration. You know,
1: oh, sure. or they people know the like answer. these
0: are one of the reasons why I still exceptionally advocate death penalty. <laughs> <you> know, <even laughs> put it like that.
1: Okay, with all these provisos, who has the balls or guts to? Um, To make a comment, a remark, a question, um, expose shamelessly their own reflections because they wrote a book on this very subject or are thinking of something. Let me just tell you
0: something because you are not only my students here who are there. Nonetheless, let me make a remark which against my nature will sound feminist, no? I'm so glad to tell you that how there is a kind of a higher necessity in our lives that every to one to three decades, a woman writes a really good book on Hegel, and it, and they are almost all women recently. It started. It's a modest book. Then she turned towards Kantianism. I don't remember uh, Beatrice Longaness wrote some 30 years ago in France a book, uh, Hegel and the Critic of Metaphysics, something like this. It sounds very modest, but it's a very good book. It was later translated, I think. Then it was some 10 years ago. Catherine Malabou, the future of Hegel, where she in a wonderful way uh, deconstructs or demystifies, using the terms very naively, this idea, Hegel the idiot who thought history is an end, No, and in a totally new way opened up this problem of Hegel and the opening of the future with a basically a beautifully paradoxical but deeply convincing thesis that Heg- what Hegel calls Absolute vision, absolute knowing, is the formula of the most radical uh, opening towards the future. It's precisely a gesture of, okay, here it is, the conclusion, so now attack me. You know what I mean? This concluding gesture which, through very self-limitation, opens up, exposes itself. It's much more honest than this... uh, Uh, self-relativizing historic season where I really hate people, where you always, when you say something, you always add that you don't really agree with yourself, you know, maybe it's not like this, I know, blah, blah. And the third book, recent one, Rebecca Comey, Morning Sickness, not morning as the sun is rising, but morning like trower, no? It's an excellent reading of Hegel and the French Revolution, much more radical than Richter and uh, uh, Joachim Ritter, sorry, not Richter, all the classical stuff that, that we know. In a wonderfully imminent analysis, it shows first how much more radical Hegel was than Kant and others. You know, the traditional reception of Hegel, of the French Revolution, of people around Hegel, was... This kind of a liberal spiritualism. In principle, it was good, but like 89 is good, 93 is bad. And then, okay, you can play all the games, that the passage was necessary or not, but nonetheless, Hegel is the only one. In Kant, you even have a wonderfully ridiculous open split into two. On the one hand, in what everyone, Lyotard, Claude... Quotes is those passages, I think, is it in Strider Fakultäten or was ist Aufklärung? I always forgot that. Which
1: passage. passages?
0: Oh. <laughs> what a vulgar empirical question. <laughs> oh, sorry, those passages on how, you know, the sublime event going on for all the public observers in Europe, signum prognosticum and all that, that celebrate. At the same time, if you look at Kant's Metaphysik der Sitten, you find such a trauma at the trial against the king, which Kant denounces as the ultimate indelible crime diabolical evil, something which from within undermines the very forum of the law. Because, you know, you violate the law in the forum of the law. So for Kant, this is, if you kill the king out of fear, rebellion, it's not a problem. If you make a legal trial against the king. It's like from within self-destruction of the rule of law. So again, uh, the, uh, the paradox is that it's at the same time the most sublime event and an unthinkable evil. Hegel's greatness is that he was ready to think both at the same time, together. And uh, Rebecca Comey wonderfully shows how all that comes afterwards, all that Kantian morality uh, and so on, uh, Schillerian aestheticism. In the following chapter, uh, kind of a, are kind of a echoes which really cannot get over this trauma. That it's a dramatic null point, French Revolution for Hegel. Sorry. I
1: By Zeus, that. that was great. <laughs>
0: Really, really, who will be your Khrushchev on you know, <laughs> yeah.
1: So there, um, we only have time for a few more questions. <laughs> um, does anyone wish to um, jump into this abyss? And we've already been told it would be horrible and torture, which sh- sh- could stoke your libidos intellectually. or. Um, we could just, do you want a question or don't, look, you've passed everyone. I'm a hypocrite.
0: I don't really want it, but to save my consciousness, it would be conscience, sorry, gewissen, not, it would be good to have just one question so that then we can say, you know, I want to behave like a wonderful example of what does the big other mean in sexuality i recently i use this in my class spoke to a very beautiful, nice elder german lady who taught me you know i only have sex with my husband so once a month and then i asked her why and then she told me well so that i can say to my analyst that i still have sex so that my analyst doesn't bother me no so for this reason so that we can just say to the big other there was a debate
1: Yes. It would be good to have a, one it's question. It's a raging debate, so <laughs> yeah. who wants to cap this debate?
2: Hi. Um, so throughout the lecture, um, I was having trouble precising exactly what you meant by um, negativity, and um, you draw this relationship between negativity and repetition. Can you then um, come across the conclusion that there is not a line between... Repetition or, or negativity and something that is not repetitious, something that occurs a singular or for, perhaps for the first time as as not being repeated, but but for being seen as an initial, like, reg- regardless of its absoluteness. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, just I see your question, yes. No, it, again,
0: it may sound very paradoxical, but here I follow Gilles Deleuze, although he would have violently disagreed with me if I say the less at his most Hegelian, where he in his maybe best book I think uh, the, his two best books are I think Logic of Sense and Difference and Repetition. This is his point there that it's only through repetition. It's not only that the new can also emerge as a repetition, but that it's only through pure repetition that something new can emerge and no it's a very radical thesis you know why because you said what about something new for the first time i claim as a good hegelian there is no first time there is no one one is not at the beginning which is why in my book on Hegel there are many surprises here, Nice. Like I found a wonderful, crucial quote. It's I will tell you exactly where, from Hegel's lectures on history of philosophy, where Hegel speaks about this Neo-Platonic mysticism, Plotinus. And Hegel then okay, his usual attack on why Plotinus doesn't get dialectical development, but then Hegel says it's absolutely crucial to, to uh, what is absolutely crucial to see is that one does not divide into two the electrical progress is not we have one which splits into two and then the higher synthesis why because for hegel one to assert the one is the most radical division you can imagine one wins one against one as you know it's not only that in a deconstructive mode one is never really one, it's supplemented, blah, blah, blah. No, the very form of oneness is a radical division. Division between what? If you listen to me, that example, a rose is a rose, you saw. The division is the division in this case. You posit rose as one only through, uh, through tautology. But you have then a gap which cannot ever be repaired because between all the multitude of predicates and the Forum of the One and so on and so on. So to go back to your point, new is you know, now you will say, but let's say something new really happens. Like let me be the most most naive. Let's say a big asteroid approaches Earth and finishes off life on earth. I don't, this, in a formal sense, it will be new. But in strict Hegelian sense, and I stick to Hegel here, it wouldn't be anything new.
2: Um, but in reference to your previous comment, um, I, there was one smart person you referenced, and... Um, he said that self-consciousness is an object. Yeah. And, um, the way, and correct me if I'm wrong, the way I conceptualize self-consciousness is always created out of relation of another object. Um, the individual subjective being put against another object and realizing either the relationship between the two, the, the, the perceiver and the object or himself just as, as another or, or as something as another object. Um, so, In experiencing the initial self-consciousness or the creation of self-consciousness, is that not a subjectively new creation? Uh, I see what you mean, but
0: again, one has to be here uh, very, very precise. The first thing to do is, again, I'm sorry if I will give you again a kind of a Twisted, convoluted answer is, I agree with you that this self-consciousness and its other, it's crucial. But the first thing to note, and I, if I got correctly the undertone of your question, I agree with you here, is to absolutely separate this topic from the standard liberal Hegelian topic of recognition. As Fred Jensen nicely remarked, Usually we had either a conservative proto-fascist Hegel, organic totality against liberalist mechanical multitude, or the leftist Hegel. Now in the last decades, more and more, a new liberal Hegel is emerging. And if you look for kind of a sign of recognition, it's the word precisely recognition. You know Hegel, whose goal is this idea in a free society, I recognize you, you recognize me and so on and so on. What is lost here is what? let me return to your example uh, encountering something new. Yes, I agree with you in what precise sense, and who was this? I forgot who uh, noticed this. I'm sorry, I'm confused, that if you look closely at uh, how Hegel describes the so-called Herrschaft Knechtschaft, this struggle to death, blah, blah, you will see that uh, it's not simply I encounter another self-consciousness and then first we fight then blah, blah, we recognize each other or whatever, but that within Hegelian space to encounter another subject – is something ontologically impossible and an ultimate scandal. Why? Because for Hegel and he is right, each of us as subject, selbewusstsein, is absolute. By definition, I as a subject and the totality of subject and object. And it's something absolutely monstrous, dramatic, because again, by for, it's not a question of psychological arrogance. By formal definition, I am the subject, the center of my world. So how can then, within the world, another jerk appear to say, "Ha ha, I'm also a subject." <laughs> that this is, and that in this sense you can say that this is something radically new. But again, I would like to make my point here. Why? Precisely because it's repetition of me. This is the the most radically new thing: is not to discover an alien or whatever, but to say "fuck it," another self consciousness. It cannot be. So you know what I mean. The basic point here, and I cannot go now into Lacanian waters. I hope he was the smart guy you mentioned. You know. is that uh, is that uh, because of this radical scandal of another self consciousness, there is a. Uh, intersubjectivity shouldn't be our ultimate horizon. There is never this symmetry of me and other subjects in the space of mutual recognition. You know, uh, uh, no wonder that in psychoanalysis, it's very important, I claim, what is the material disposition, dispositive of psychoanalytic treatment, it's not me eye to eye with the analyst, I see you, you see me. No, it's I look into the void, the guy is behind me. So it's the sub, the, for me, psychoanalyst is not another subject, it's an object. It has to be behind me. It's basically even, in a way, a silent object. In other words, the idea is and this is why I agree with you that the encounter of the other is something new. But again, it is not intersubjectivity. Sorry, I didn't answer the thank, question. I thank you. Understand. I think, but, uh, you know what,
1: I think you would love Levinas.
0: Khrushchev uh, is too beautiful for you. No
1: <laughs> this exactly. is Aufhebung no. time. So I want to thank you for dialectically doing what you just did. And for closing the season and for um, really bringing, until the last few remarks, outstanding um, reflections to us. And also, we're looking forward to reading every one of those thousand printed pages.
0: Now, you know, Kant, towards the end, to solve the problem of French Revolution, because it was unthinkable, this diabolical evil, Kant tried to show that it wasn't really that, that the idea of evil in the pure form of good, that is to say, killing them, mo- that it's impossible. It's so evil that it cannot happen. So he tried to prove how no French revolutionaries were really afraid of the king's revenge. You know, it was a pathological form. So Kant says, no, there is only radical evil, like our radical propensity towards evil. But pure diabolical evil, evil done for the sake of it, is not possible. Looking at you, maybe Kant was wrong.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so long. Farewell. I'll (laughs) read it.